You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop, the show that's a little bit of everything with a K-Pop twist. Visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com for more information about the show. That's 17-C-A-R-A-T-K-P-O-P.weebly.com. Enjoy the show! Hello everyone and welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Today on the show, I want to take a closer look at all of the ways that K-Pop YouTube content is so consumable, is so fun, is so engaging, and you can really fall down a rabbit hole watching K-pop content. Basically, we're going to talk about how K-pop and the YouTube algorithm have become the perfect combination and the marketing strategies and secrets behind the viral success of K-pop and the ways that K-pop has used social media. And a lot of this is going to be about Soo-Mian Lee and the founding of SM Entertainment because they really pioneered this global expansion of Hallyu content. They really help shape the Hallyu wave. So we're going to basically have a deep dive into some historical and technical and cultural aspects that have evolved into and created that perfect storm of ingredients for K-pop to be so successful globally. And before we look at those uh, secrets behind the scenes, that kind of content about what that process was like, I will just clarify, I realize it sounds like the ultimate irony because just on the last episode I was saying it's weird to spend way too much time focused on how K-pop got popular, but hear me out. What I meant by that was really, I don't want the media to focus on why is K-pop popular outside of other countries because of its Koreanness. I don't like the framing of when the media talks about how on earth, you know, did 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 Korean music get popular in a country where they don't speak Korean? It feels very weird, and the default assumption that lies in that those kind of statements is that it's just abnormal to like Korean music if you're not from Korea, and I just have a lot of issues with that. That is a totally different discussion than this. This is talking about, I'm going to be talking about more le- more technically, More technically, economically, culturally, like really just the actual practical aspects of answering the question literally of how did it get popular all over the world. So I just want to be super clear, I'm not trying to be hypocritical because I do find it interesting. I've read interview upon interview with Sue Man Lee and people who have worked with SM Entertainment over time and they really have pioneered this strategy and it's really fascinating how successful it's been. And so we're definitely going to talk a lot about that. We also have some things to talk about in terms of virtual events and festivals being held and how much insane amounts of money you can get paid, apparently, for everything from a TikTok video to a Fortnite appearance. We're going to be breaking down those numbers. Lots of news in the world of BTS, Blackpink. I will be addressing the BTS Time Magazine discussion online and my thoughts on that. There's also some drama with the band about you. There's some lawsuits pending there. There is a whole lot of content to cover today, so we are just going to jump right in. But, first of all, your action of the day is please do read this beautiful, moving tribute to John Lewis. It's by Brittany Packnett Cunningham, and it is in Time Magazine now. The column is called John Lewis Gave Young Activists Our Marching Orders, Let's Make Him Proud, and that title perfectly sums up the sentiment of the of the piece, but please go read it all, as well as other tributes, and continue to read, like, his March graphic novel series, things like that, because he really left so many important tools and uh, ability and educational tools, activist tools, he left so much 
for the next generation to have. He passed the torch to us, and we need to make sure we don't let that go. So I just want to continue to make sure you have him in your thoughts, because we need to continue to use his spirit, manifest his spirit, and make sure that he did not die in vain. His life goal was not in vain. So let's keep on with that fight toward justice. And if you're if you're a little stuck some days or not sure how to do that, it's great to read pieces like that to remind you of the heroes that have helped pave this way. Also, before we jump into today's news, my recommendation. So what to listen to today? My recommendation is... Victoria Son from FX, she released a C-pop album a little while ago, and I just got a, a chance to really listen to the whole thing, and it's really great. So please check out Victoria's self-titled C-pop album. It's my, personally my favorite track is track 8. It doesn't have an English translation, but it's track 8 out of 10 on the list. That one sounds great with headphones, just a PSA, because literally the song is like in one ear and then it's in the other and it's just sonically a very cool experience. So it's a very refreshing, fun album that I highly recommend. I think all pop fans will love it. As for what to watch this week, all sorts of YouTube content from the channels that I will be discussing as I break down the secrets to K-pop and YouTube's perfect Match Made in Heaven scenario. So first, let's get to some headlines. There's a lot to talk about in terms of the BTS world. First of all, BTS just broke five more world records. Most of, Officially, they're considered to have the most viewed live stream concert ever from Bang Bang Con. They are also the first K-pop group to top the USA album charts. They have the most albums ever sold in Korea, the most Twitter activity, and the fastest time. It, they, they got the fastest time um, it took compared to other groups to reach one million TikTok followers. So... All of that and probably more coming in terms of world records. Also, Namjoon's solo mixtape Mono is now tied with Beyonce's Lemonade for fifth place in with when it comes to albums that have reached the most number ones in iTunes history. Tied with Lemonade, that is so huge. And he is the Asian artist with the highest ranking in this category from throughout history. With and Mono actually got a number one in 108 countries, so he's really, it continues to reap the rewards of that wonderful mixtape, so congrats to Namjoon for that. Other upcoming BTS projects, Smeralda Books is tweeting again, and there's a lot of backstory that I don't have time to get into, so this is just a, a moment for the ARMY only, we'll understand, but, um, so the Smeralda update, what we need, what I need to say about that. So, a couple things, first of all, I feel like a BTS comeback is sooner than we think because once Smeraldo starts tweeting more, something's about to go down. So just, you know, stay tuned because I feel like whenever we let our guard down as ARMY and just even, I don't know if we ever actually do let our guard down, but let's just say we do, I feel like that's when they drop a song. So just like stay on your toes. And I also want to point out that the Smeraldo, so the line that I'm thinking about is the note that said the Smeraldo was trampled under my feet and a time loop began again. So that I'm still thinking about because now I'm wondering, I'm overthinking the word again, a time loop began again. And so now I'm having this inception style train of thought where I'm wondering, is this one of those situations where it's like, you know, 
you're 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 imagining that someone is imagining that someone is imagining that someone is imagining something and so now i'm really just kind of freaking out and ruminating over what this could mean so let me know your thoughts and predictions though if you have them love to keep that conversation going about this saga also i would just want to point out that the notes are being labeled um year 22 and I just turned 22, my birthday was a week or two ago, so I'm just saying, you know, for them to release a note that says year 22 right after my birthday, I mean, coincidence, I choose not to think so, no matter what. All their BTS news, yes, there's still even more. So, apparently, these are all rumors, nothing is confirmed yet, but Big Hit Entertainment apparently has basically filed a trademark for In The Soup, S-O-O-P, which means forest in Korean, In The Soup, for what is rumored to be a version of Bon Voyage BTS, so basically like another, another travel variety show, but Soup is the name of a campsite in Korea, so fans are speculating that this is kind of going to be like Bon Voyage was, but it's going to be a staycation and it's just going to be on site in Korea, so we might get more new reality show content too. Also, fans notice that people are referring to this, and all the rumored reports are referring to this in the soup show as the BTS version. So that made people think, are we going to get a G-Friend version and a TXT version? Is this for more than one big hit entertainment artist? So I feel like a lot is in the works that we are going to find out more about very soon. So stay tuned for that. Also, BTS has been added to iHeartRadio's festival lineup for the year. Naturally, like everything else this year, that festival will be digital, but it will go on because it is the 10-year anniversary of it, and, and in general, festivals just want to wanna find ways to make it work digitally. So BTS is the only K-pop act on the lineup. They'll be there with Coldplay, Keith Urban, Miley Cyrus, Usher, Migos. It's quite a lineup. And basically it's going to be, the, the format this year is going to be the same as it is when it's in an in-person event where five nights per, five acts perform per night. And so basically half of them are going to film their sets while performing at an LA stage location and then another stage is located in Nashville. So half of the performances recorded in Nashville, half in LA. The stage will be completely deep clean before and between each act, and the camera crew will be just a skeleton crew, the bare minimum of who needs to be there. The camera crew will be tested for COVID every day while they're doing this and preparing for this event and stuff, and the production team, when possible, will just stand out in the parking lot waiting their turn to do what they gotta do with the equipment. So they're really trying to take a lot of safety precautions, but it sounds like they do still want to make this something that is made in the USA, literally. So I don't know what this means for BTS. I don't know if that's an exception and they'll let them stay in South Korea and perform from there. It doesn't sound like it, but we will see. I would hope they wouldn't be expected to fly it more than they have to these days. So that will air September 27th and 28th on the CW and through the CW app. Also, if you're listening to iHeartRadio, you will hear the live stream of the event as well. And last announcement that was a part of that big iHeartRadio announcement is from the the head of the whole iHeartMedia label event and everything. So this guy basically said 
that what they're planning is, quote, a Zoom suite of fans. So what I think that is is probably like what it was for K-Contact, where it's literally like a Zoom suite, as that like basically a video chat, but with a wall full of pictures. You could see like everyone's camera. It's like a giant Zoom chat on a giant screen. And so it sounds like they're doing a version of that for this event. I don't know any further information, and even that has not been officially more than... He confirmed it in one interview, but he's really otherwise stayed tight-lipped, so maybe he just let that slip out in one interview, but when more details are officially confirmed, I'll let you know on the show, but so far, how to apply to be in that um, live audience is... Uh, TBD, or even if this is still just an idea being thrown around or legit, that is TBD as well, but I will keep you posted. Rolling Stone just released a list of the top 75 best boy group songs of all time. So I have a lot of thoughts about this list, and mostly I agree with it. There are quite a few K-pop songs on it, which I was very happy to see. They weren't given their own list, they were just there. It was just a nice way to normalize listening to K-pop groups alongside other groups. In the list included some of my favorites, Fantastic Baby by Big Bang, so iconic, Sherlock by Shiny, The Chaser by Infinite, and there were also a lot of BTS songs on the list, Euphoria, Spring Day, Fake Love, Moon. So it really, it really, I'm very personally approving of and impressed with the list. Although, a couple things. One... So, apparently, there's some confusion about this, so please clarify if you know, but is that in order? Is the ranking in order, or is the top 75 boy group songs list in no particular order? Because if it's in no particular order, then I have no particular issue. If it is in order, I want to move the order a little bit around. I need to move Fantastic Baby up at least, like, ten more notches. I need to replace Euphoria and Moon, because I would personally put Euphoria ahead of Moon. So I have some other placement issues if it was supposed to be in order. But of course this is all subjective. I'm just, uh, I just find these lists interesting and considering what I would do differently, I really do hope that they do one for girl group ops as well in the future if they're not already making that list because, come on, there are so, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, the only reason they the only excuse to me they could have for not doing a girl group list is that there are just too many good ones to choose from. There's just so much content there. So we will see, but I would love to know. So talk to the show 17 Karat Cape Up Online. Let me know what you think deserves to go in the best boy group or girl group song list of all time. Doesn't have to be K-pop. Just anything that just is a shoe in in your mind. I could spend like a whole other hour talking about what should have been on this list, but, of course, I do think this was a great, well-rounded collection of songs that I don't disagree with either. So, you know, you can only do so much. Obviously, if I could add anything, though, it would have to be something from Seventeen. But that's just my super not-objective opinion. Alright, last piece of BTS news. So, the Time Magazine issue. What's been going on with that? So, the BTS ARMY is upset about... And I have some issues, too, with uh, what Time Magazine had done. So basically, this started circulating around the internet, this picture of a Time Magazine cover that looked very photoshopped and featured the BTS members 
and it was basically pitched as this bookazine, this special limited edition version of Time Magazine, dedicated just to talking about BTS, all things BTS, with all sorts of photos and, inter or not interviews, I guess, but like content, you know, like an unofficial guide to BTS. And so this bookazine was being spread around rapidly online, and then people were like, is this even real or is this just a fan edit? Because believe it or not, just a fan edit can go just as viral, if not more, than a, a legit promotional material. But Time Magazine, through their verified Twitter account, did confirm this is a real thing that will be on newsstands at the end of this month. So then fans were looking into it, and you can actually see quite a few pages, excerpts, and images of this bookazine online already. And all these teasers have led fans to be upset with its content because, by the looks of it, there is, first of all, the cover that people are taking issue with, just the ways it looks photoshopped like just a fan edit and not a professional magazine cover. Also, people are, I think, a little surprised because when BTS was on Time Magazine before, that image was really wonderful. It's just, in terms of, like, from a photography standpoint, well done. So this was just, this just threw fans off. Also, fans were disappointed to see that the chapter titles lead you to believe this is going to be a very basic unofficial guide that isn't, people were calling out different things that weren't fact-checked throughout the piece and how there's a whole chapter dedicated to questioning when Jin will go off and enlist. People also took issue with the comparisons because, again, it's talking about that issue of how did they become popular in America, and of course they're, then they're being compared to the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and all of that. So, just to be clear, the other day, the official description for this bookazine, when you're trying to purchase it, the official description no longer includes references to the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. So it does, it, they did respond to some public backlash by quietly deleting that part, but no official apology or statement aside from that as of recording time has been made. Alright, so my opinion about this. First of all, with the cover. I don't have an issue with the cover, frankly. I don't, um, for a couple of reasons. One is that we're in a pandemic, and so if you can't do an in-person photo shoot, you can't do an in-person photo shoot. Like, there's only so much you can do, so just keep that in mind too, um, especially when your favorite artists these days are like releasing more animated music videos or more animated content overall. Like we're just uh, trying to adapt and build this ship as we go, like, or whatever the phrase is. Um, so just yeah, I don't know. I want to cut artists slack this year about how they try to promote their work in certain ways because we're just doing the best we can given some weird circumstances that no one expected. Other thing is this situation made me think of the Mattel BTS Barbie doll release because people were really kind of really emotional and freaked out about how the BTS dolls don't look like them. Um, and personally, I had I didn't think they looked exactly like them either. But also, I just want to keep in mind, it's very impressive to me when any artist does... Create something, I don't know, and put so much time and effort into it. So even if you think the BTS dolls don't really look like BTS, their outfits do. And I just really have a lot of respect for every 
all of the work that goes into creating those little doll outfits, all of the detail, all of the hours spent working on those things. So I, I just think about everyone involved in making these products. And so that makes me more um, less likely to just jump into this angry defensive mode and slam it for being, you know, not up to my expectations. So that's what this situation made me think about a little. It's obviously a lot different because editing a magazine cover is a lot less work than making doll clothes. But it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, how the look is is subjective. What looks corny or just awkward is subjective. And people do put a lot of time and effort into the look of anything they release in the media. So I don't know. I just try not to harp on people for that too much. And personally, I don't know. I mean, it looks... If, I mean, BTS just had that paper magazine shoot a year or two ago, and that broke the internet, and that was intentionally super, like, Photoshop-esque, Lisa Frank-esque, you know, you know the look. And so, you know, I, I don't know, it's weird that people would harp on this and not that. Like, the the weird double standard, I don't know, it's just a mess, so... I would hold off on criticizing the cover too much. As for the content, I do have some issues with it. There were some major fact check issues. They, um, for example, one part, one excerpt mentions how BTS was in was at KCON in 2015, which is not true. They were not there in 2015. Things like that that were so are so easily searchable. You can so easily fact check them. That feels just like lazy writing, and that's disappointing. So. There's that, but then, and then of course I'm very disappointed whenever they're, you know, it seems like the Western media needs to compare them to other boy bands, that was unnecessary, so I'm glad they took that out of the description, pretty sure it's too, it was too late publishing-wise for them to take it out of the actual book, but we'll see what happens. I wish they'd release a bit more of a an explanation and an apology, aside from just quietly deleting that from the web, but we'll see, and... My other, so yeah, my other main issue really is with the enlistment thing because this is something that I just wish they had talked to Big Hit Entertainment about, and I feel like they didn't. That, I think, is the big difference between projects like with Mattel and with um, Smeraldo Books, even, and then with this. This feels like it was, they did not talk to BTS at all. It was just made with people who didn't speak to Big Hit people. So I just, I think that's the big difference. Like, can you tell if BTS or at least their company had a lot of uh, input and conversation around this project? And if they didn't, maybe that's a sign it's more of a money grab. So I guess that's how I would look at this. So not super enthused by this, by this um, unofficial bookazine, but that's just something to keep in mind too, because I do think if they had talked to Big Hit Entertainment, they would have realized that um, Jin's enlistment is something that no one wants to read more about, armies don't want to think about, so don't write about that, and also that it's just a touchy subject that group members don't want to really address this. They do, but pretty vaguely, and then they move on to the next question. So typically, just I would suggest that the press back off of that question because the idols, what are they going to say? They're not going to say in the middle of promoting their album. Yeah, I'm going to talk about my enlistment now. So they're not going to they're not going to disclose that and it just feels like a waste of time to ask then. So um to write a whole piece debating when he might enlist or what that'll do to their popularity is wild, especially just cuz the other day I was thinking about how well, all the directioners were online again 
to celebrate One Direction's 10-year anniversary, which is huge and exciting. And it just got me thinking how there's so much conversation about when will this BTS fever fade away? You know, when will, I guess, and everyone seems to assume that when they enlist, that's when it'll go away. So that's just weird to me. So I would always point those people to that example. The Directioners are still here after 10 years and a lot of time away from them being a full band. So calm down. The army is here to stay, whether you like it or not. And enlistment isn't going to change that. Not something we want to talk about. Just saying. Alright, more news. Lehigh has officially signed with AOMG, which I really hoped she would, and so that's, that's really exciting. Uh, also, Monsta X's fandom, the Mon Bebe, is recognized along with them, officially as members of the Good Neighbors Club, which is basically a, a club membership title you can hold after you make a combined amount of around 10 million won, which is around $84,000 USD per year to NGO, this international humanitarian organization. And due to those donations that fans matched Monsta X for this past year, they qualify to be considered part of the Neighbor Club. And it also, also to basically be accepted with this title, you have to foster this culture of kindness and giving back, and the Mon Bebe embodies that. So that's very exciting and just a, a great point of pride for Monster X and the fandom. Stray Kids, God's Menu video, now has 70 million views. And Jay from Day 6, his solo song Pac-Man now has 2 million views, which is huge, especially without like a, an official promo run. Blackpink has some big things happening. Lisa is now the new global ambassador for Bulgari. And they have an upcoming single they teased with a TBA collaborator, who we all think is Ariana Grande, but you know, we'll see. And speaking of Blackpink and Ariana, Blackpink just surpassed her to be the most subscribed to female artist on YouTube with over 42.2 million subscribers, which are pro it's probably closer to 42.5 million by the time I'm recording this at the rate it's going. Alright, and the last bit of news Victor from About You, the band About You, is back in the news. We talked about in a past episode how he he left About You after so many years with the group because he there was a bit of debate about what really happened, but he claims he was fired from the group for breaking a drumstick during practice, despite all the years of... Um, of the blood, sweat, and tears he gave to the group, they he they fired him over a broken drumstick, and he was upset about that. But then the company was going to sue him for defamation, which now apparently is going forward. So there's a lot of there was a lot of back and forth there that we addressed on an earlier episode. But now there's more drama added to the mix. So there's this female artist named Minty. She is a soloist, and she also knows about you, and was hired to be their official stylist. But that lasted for one show, and after one show she was already fired from being their stylist. I don't know what happened there, that is not clear. But just recently, apparently, some CCTV footage was unveiled that proves that she walked out of the dressing room on a day where she had already lost her job as their stylist, but she was wearing Victor's leather jacket. And so she left in his jacket, and she claimed she left with it 
Um, not when, not because she was still their stylist. I think she admitted she'd uh, already lost that job, but still she claimed it was for some sort of sponsorship. She needed the jacket for promotional purposes for some brand that she was going to rep for money, but that was proven to be a lie. And so she admitted that she just stole Victor's jacket because she liked it. So now not only is this company, and believe it or not, I kid you not, this company is called Corona X Entertainment. So anyway, that that is a, a, another twist in the story. So Corona X Entertainment is now not only suing Victor for defamation, for the claims that he made about why he was fired from the band, but now they're also suing Minty in a separate lawsuit for her stealing his jacket. So it's basically Corona versus Victor, but then it's also Corona defending Victor versus Minty. So it's it's wild. I don't know what will happen next, but there's just a lot going on. And in about eight or nine days, there will be the next uh, development in this story with Victor's trial. He recently went on his YouTube channel to make a video pleading for donations from fans so he could pay for a lawyer. So... Not sure how many people actually donated, but we will we will see what happens and who represents him in court and all of that. So we will be following that story for the show. In terms of quarantunes, switching gears now, talking about the ways that the world is adapting to a concertless music industry. TikTok continues to bring in money and pay people. So despite the fact that it has recently been banned in certain countries and areas in the world, they are really still investing heavily in TikTok stars with this new $200 million creator fund. So this $200 million fund is going to help regularly pay for TikTok artists to release content. So it'll be like getting a paycheck from any job. So they can officially consider it a job to be a TikToker, They actually differ from YouTubers in this way now because with YouTube, if you make money, so let's say if I was just for a total example, obviously this is not the real number, but for the example, let's say I made a YouTube video and it was worth $10, then TikTok, basically what TikTok would do is pay me $10, whereas YouTube would take the $10 and then pay me back maybe five, maybe seven, probably more like three. So YouTube would basically take the money and then give me some of it, but TikTok is just straight up paying the artist. So maybe even more YouTubers now will transition into focusing on TikTok content for that reason. However, it's not for every TikToker. You have to be at least 18 years old and be selected from an application process taking place in August. So... I'm not sure how many creators actually get this opportunity, but it is something that they are investing in, which is interesting, especially considering the recent issues around TikTok access around the world that they're still focusing so heavily on promoting through TikTok. But it'll be interesting what happens from that. Where they also may want to keep attention is Fortnite, because Travis Scott's Fortnite appearance that we've talked about already on the show, the numbers are in. He officially made $500,000 for performing in that game for a 15-minute set. 
$500,000, and apparently these artists who agree for in-game appearances and song releases and concerts, they can get paid anywhere from $50,000 to $350,000 for their sets. And these sets in these virtual worlds tend to be shorter, like Travis Scott's 15-minute one. Fifty to three hundred fifty thousand dollars, and apparently even they can make extra money. What's called like a back end bonus from doing this, from release, from deciding they're going to premiere a new song or video or whatever during the event. That will give them more money if they agree to do that. There are all sorts of other technical aspects that give them a boost, but basically they can rake in a lot of cash through these digital realms. So that will continue to happen, I think, especially. The latest development in the Spotify Universal licensing agreement is that now that Universal Music and Spotify have this new partnership, there are going to be, basically what's happening now in that world is that there's now this two-sided marketplace, and what that basically means is what we talked about a lot in a previous episode. I believe it was the one called EJ and Open Your Eyes, which is an NCT slash J from Day 6 joke, just in case anyone missed that. <laughs> I'm proud of that episode title. That episode is the one where I talk a lot about more about the history of payola and pay-to-play schemes, not just in K-pop, but the music industry overall over time. So check out that episode if you're interested in this more. But what I'll say for this story is just that that it continues to be at play here. And here's the newest example. Because what this licensing deal, without reading into all the legal technicalities on the show, what you need to know is that basically this new partnership is going to be a way to continue the pay-to-play schemes in a sense. Because now the companies can basically use bribes to make sure their artist gets push notifications more, gets put in recommended, recommended Spotify playlists more, things like that. So it's going to affect song placements that way. And also it'll affect basically promotion in terms of data and analytics. So basically you can, it sounds like now you can buy, managers can buy access to certain data and figure out what to do with that data when they decide how to target their ads and things like that. These type of practices tend to help the bigger companies who have more money to throw at these marketing campaigns. So um, really keep supporting your faves that are part of the big companies that get a lot of backing, of course. But also please be sure that to spread the word about your favorite underrated artists from lesser known companies. Um, because these, these types of practices that are still in effect today clearly shouldn't have an outsized influence. There are just so many underrated groups out there, so make sure you continue to help amplify them because maybe their company can't afford to have their message amplified through through streamlined digital tactics, so they just need a grassroots method of promotion, so we can take it upon ourselves to do that. All right, speaking of digital events, there was this, the latest was this 2020 Indie Craft K-Game Festival. Basically, you could create a 3D avatar, and while you were in this festival game, you could talk to other people who were there, attend like booths. It was like a digital version of going to the state fair, and you could share contact info and private messages as you walked around talking to people. And so this made me think two things. One is that what needs to happen is there needs to be some sort of a digital Reve festival. I want to go to the Red Velvet Festival because that looks like the most fun place in the world. If you know, you know. And I just think that would be the coolest. So Animal Crossing, if you're listening, Sims Game, if you're listening, any other 
worlds where Red Velvet could maybe have at least a day-long event that's like a virtual Red Velvet festival where fans can interact with their avatars. Let's make that happen. I just feel like that would be a perfect partnership. Just throwing that out there. Other thing that made me, this story made me think about is that maybe the networking and collaboration opportunities that I was worried would not I was worried we'd lost this year because of all the festival cancellations. Maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe we're still getting a lot of networking happening, but just through avatars and other interesting methods. So that's very interesting, especially when you think about how maybe this is even a fairer way to network and collaborate and form those relationships because you're not deciding who to network with based on how they look. You're just doing it based on how they are, their demeanor when they talk to you through their avatar, their, you know, resume or whatever. I just, I wonder if it'll lead to more, more, less, less prejudiced and biased, um, implicitly biased, uh, partnership formation and willingness to cooperate with others. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what this means for the future. Lastly, in terms of new ways that music is being promoted right now, this band called The 1975 have recently had this online art exhibit. So basically they combine AI with robotics and 3D and all these other different elements of the futuristic artwork, I guess you could say, to basically create these physical embodiments of what their songs are all about. So if you go to their official website, you can find a link to the YouTube playlist and that YouTube playlist has music set to look at all these different exhibits one after the other. Basically, what a visual art museum. And it's for the new piece. Got me thinking about the, how what, what different K-pop albums I want to literally come to life with physical art. Obviously, BTS comes to mind because of their project where they had the art exhibits around the world. But that would be cool if they had something like a blood, sweat, and tears exhibit and things like that. Just another idea companies should borrow from me. You're welcome for this free consulting. So that is the latest in terms of music and K-pop news. And after this break, we are going to talk more about what's the winning formula for K-pop YouTube content, how has that evolved over time, what marketing tactics have proven useful, and really some of it is direct and overt, but some of it is just me kind of seeing between the lines and trying to figure out, oh, I see what you did there and what they've done that's worked so well, whether it was intentional or not, with a big focus on SM Entertainment and how it became the marketing juggernaut that it is today. Before I get into the backstory of K-pop marketing and the scene globally around the world and all of that, I just want to share my nine reasons why I think that K-pop YouTube content is so addicting and so fun to watch and just just good and why it's so popular. And we're going to pretend that I made up 17 reasons because I always try to make my list 17 things. You know this about me if you're a long-time listener. So we're going to pretend these are 17 things. So just bear with me as I pretend. So first of all, K-pop YouTube content. And here in this list, I'm describing reality show appearances, talk show appearances, game shows, just in general vlogs, um, video, music videos, dance performance videos, everything. So all K-pop content on YouTube. So first of all, there's the fact that it's free. It's on YouTube, which is very globally accessible these days. And it's just free 24-7 easy access content. That's part of the reason why it's so popular. 
Number two, they get right to the point. With K-pop YouTube content, they just jump right into whatever they're going to do for the show. So that's what makes it really, enter- what helps it be entertaining is that they start right off the bat with whatever they're going to do. They say, you know, we're going to play this game and then they play that game. Or we're going to do this today and they do that thing. Whereas with a lot of, like, you t- with a lot of non-K-pop YouTubers that just post vlogs or whatever, there is like a whole three minute intro like, hi guys, welcome back to my channel. I'm here. I am going to talk about this today but first I'm going to go into detail about why you should like and subscribe and talk about all that I'm gonna do and blah 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 and then like three minutes later it's like oh okay let's get to the show and I know I'm kind of roasting myself here because I do that before my show too in a way but I don't know I feel like with a YouTube video uh, it's more self-explanatory. We don't need the setup. Like, the title usually says exactly what the video is, so you don't need to spend, like, three minutes telling us what you'll do. So, anyway, that's just a little pet peeve of mine. But K-pop videos get around that. They don't really do that. They just jump right in the action. Another reason why I think it's so popular. Third, it's great for multi-fandom people. There is, are so many constant crossovers that really help, whether this was intentional or not, help promote each other's groups. There are so many moments through ev- through everything from Knowing Brothers to shows that are artist-specific where the K-pop stars cover each other's songs, usually f- uh, label mates' songs, and it's just really fun and exciting if you... If you get to watch a group that you're also into show that they know the point dance of your other fave or they know all the lyrics to your other fave song or they can rap along with your other fave. So it's just really cool to see those crossover moments where they acknowledge one another and I don't know. It's just a fun moment where I fangirl when I get to see one of my faves dance or sing to another one of my faves songs. So there's a lot of that in K-pop YouTube content content accessible through YouTube. Number four, it's really fun. K-pop shows and content are really just fun and playful and they're they're just entertaining. They're games, you know, like I guess the best example is EXO's game show type season of the reality show where they did everything from racing each other in mini cars to playing on like a Dance Revolution style board. I mean, there was a lot there. Uh, Stray Kids does a great job with this as well with their fun songwriting games and stuff and so it's it's just fun and it's light and it's you know I think the world is so dark especially this year but always and it's just such a breath of fresh air it's a nice escape and it's just fun to watch and get invested in a game that is just fun and frivolous and just a good time that you don't have to take seriously. I also think sometimes reality TV, don't get me wrong, sometimes like bad reality TV I really like watching because it's just a great time to just like put my brain on autopilot and just, you know, just not have to think too much. Just take a minute to just, just sit with bad TV and pretend that those issues are important. It just is sometimes a nice energy saver to do that as opposed to watching something more serious and dark, but Sometimes that manufactured drama on reality TV is not exciting for me. I just am tired of watching people fight, and so that stuff's not entertaining to me. So I would much rather watch this version of a reality show. If you're new to K-content, you probably aren't aware that 
these K-pop stars, they tend to have reality shows all the time and vlog-style shows, and their version of a reality show is not like MTV reality shows. I mean, it is very, by comparison to Western reality shows, it's very, very light and innocent and just fun and playful and just not... It's it's just not extra in the same way. <laughs> They're extra when it comes to losing a game, maybe, but they don't get extra in terms of, like, throwing water in each other's faces or whatever. So it's just, I mean, it's less brutal, you know? It's less brutal. It's just childlike fun, and I think that taps into the inner child. We all need to really work extra hard to resurface these days. So the K-pop reality show content some days I really just prefer because it is just light and fun and their version of like drama is just less severe and so personally I just I just think it's better <laughs> it's just sometimes more fun and it just is more human you know more human more authentic and nice nice yeah it's just frankly nicer number five this content can be so popular because it follows a formula while also staying fresh. So there are some things that become common in a K-pop reality show where you're like, okay, I know what they're going to do next, but they also mix things up a little. So some elements stay the same, but some don't. This concept was written about in the book we referenced in a previous episode called Hitmakers by Derek Thomas. He basically, excuse me, Derek Thompson, he basically said that the concept of familiar surprises is how concepts and content go, go viral. Familiar surprises, basically meaning you take an old idea and add your own perspective. You add a twist to it, you change things up, but not change up the underlying dynamic, the underlying concept that people are familiar with. Because humans are naturally resistant to change emotionally, mentally, it's just a lot sometimes to watch something new and you know there are a lot of times where you, you've been meaning to check out a new show and you just don't have the you just don't feel like it mentally and you go back to watching your favorite show for the hundredth time and so that familiar surprises concept taps into that desire for consistency in our lives while also staying somewhat still mentally stimulating by not being an entire repeat and so that is the kind of fresh content you will see on these shows, where they have they follow formulas but are still unpredictable. The perfect example, I think, is Mass Singer. Not the USA version, but the actual original Korean version, where they have such unique, clever, elaborate mask designs to look at, and the, for, the how the episode goes down is super predictable, of course, but who's under the mask is always obviously different, it's fun, and of course just seeing the masks is, it's like an art show meets an American Idol style show, so it's a lot there, and it is a great encapsulation of that familiar surprises concept. Number six, it is easily searchable online. There are, there tend to be English translations for song titles, if not flat out always an English song title that you can look up, especially when compared to C-pop and J-pop. K-pop songs are very easy to find online and tend to have English subtitles, as well as more and more over time, they've had a lot more languages added as well. Number seven, the comment section of K-pop videos are so entertaining sometimes because fandoms will comment inside jokes or they will have like whole campaigns where they'll be in the comments 
basically all spamming the comments with one funny message. That tends to happen a lot with Seventeen. I've seen where all the fans will say unpopular opinion, Seventeen slays, unpopular opinion, Seventeen rules the world. All those quote-unquote unpopular opinions, we love to see it, and they're not wrong. So it's just a fun way to, again, connect with fans online, which is a huge part of K-pop fandom culture. It's also a good way to see updates about streaming goals and things like that. Number eight, there are, there are a lot of ways that K-pop content is reused and repurposed and then shared among the fandoms. So, you know, everything from dubbed over versions of K-pop shows to remixes of the songs, mashups of the songs, things like that, all of that is made by fans and then that gets shared and spread around the, around the, uh, does the rounds around social media apps and then people repost it to YouTube in compilations and then that drives traffic to those accounts who posted it. It's just a bunch of cross references throughout these media sites and YouTube is a home base for those types of cross reference sharing. Number nine, aka number 17, there is a constant upload schedule. These artists really do know how to keep it consistent and keep fans entertained, and it becomes then a, a natural daily part of your life, really. To, I think actually a great example is Luna. With Luna TV, they basically have these one-minute clips that they release very, very frequently. So if you don't have much time one day, even on your busiest days, you can snag a minute to watch the latest Luna video. So they're a part of your daily life, and then it's harder to remove them from your life. It really heightens that sense of identity you have in the fandom, and then you're, you're a more passionate fan, less likely to leave the fandom. They're a part of you, really. Being a fan is a big part of your, of your life, then when it's such a constant presence in your life, then you would feel it when it's missing. And Luna also does have then longer, like closer to a half hour episodes of this other vlog style content. And so they have a nice balance of you get to watch a significant amount of them, that it makes up a significant portion of your day. But they also have the type of content where you can just have a quick, you your brain basically gets a quick Stan Luna reminder and then you go on your way. So... To summarize, free global 24-7 access on YouTube, they cut right to the point, they have all these familiar surprises, it's fun, it's playful, it's a lot more lighthearted than some other reality show content, a lot less dramatic in unnecessary petty ways. It's a great way for multi-fandom people to get excited for the crossover potential, easily searchable content, entertaining comment section, Lots of cool ways that fandoms interact through YouTube discourse, and the constant upload schedule makes it a constant part of our lives. So how do all these reasons why K-pop content is so popular, especially on YouTube, what, what does all that have to do specifically with K-pop music videos and just K-pop music, and why is SM Entertainment such a standout for their ability to reach fans globally? So that's what we're going to go into first before I give a clear answer I want to share some background about Sue Man Lee and his founding of SM Entertainment and what went into that, and just really to add a lot of context historically for what led to the culture of SM Entertainment today and its huge status today. So, let's start this timeline back in 1962 when... A couple of big things happen in the music scene. First of all, the British invasion of the Beatles and whatnot, but other groups as well. The, Br the British pop sound 
was worldwide. So it, yes, it was in South Korea too, where that sound was all over. Also, that time was influenced by some early elements of J-pop because that was the year that Johnny and Associates formed. I talked a lot about them on a previous episode. So Johnny and Associates was the agency that was formed in Japan in 62. That was also the year where Shin Joon-hyun started his career, aka Jackie Shin. That was his stage name. And so Jackie Shin is is viewed as the godfather of rock in Korea. That's his nickname. Godfather of rock for Korea. He actually formed the first official Korean rock band called Ad4. He also founded some other big names like the Pearl Sisters and other pre-officially K-pop groups. So this was before K-pop was technically a thing, but he basically pioneered this K-rock movement of sorts. So a big mix of sounds in the 60s coming together influencing musical trends. Then in the 70s, Soo Man Lee was actually into folk music and he was a folk singer himself for a period of time who had significant popularity as a folk singer. And that was actually at the time, though, embraced as kind of a counterculture movement's anthems. So it was a very politically tense, charged time in South Korea in the 70s, and this counterculture movement really embraced folk music. And then, however, the the non-counterculture, so the just mainstream cult, popular culture of the time, was really focused on trot music, which has a lot of Japanese influences, and so there's a lot to unpack there about why that trot music went up and down in popularity over time in South Korea, but for the sake of the story, I'll just say that what Sue Manley was doing even back in the 70s was he was, he was, he branched away from his folk sound that he had originally fallen in love with and still paid attention to the fact that the main popularity was a different genre, so he leaned more into that for marketing purposes. So he even had an ear and an eye out back then for what are the trends to be keeping an eye out for? And one was trot music, and so he kept an eye out on that. So, little side story actually. So Jackie Shin, that godfather of rock for Korea in 72, he actually, he was, super long story short, he ended up being jailed, he refused to write propaganda songs for the government, he basically, he wrote some very politically charged music, he was arrested or put in some sort of institution for that. But then five years after the arrest, he did return, felt safe by then to to basically start releasing music again because the president who had him locked up before had passed away by then. And he basically felt free to re-enter the music scene. But when he did that time, actually, he basically formed this new band and they started performing his songs, but all like new disco versions. So he made them more up-tempo to fit with the time. So it wasn't just Sue Man Lee, it was these icons like Jackie Shin who decided to lean into what was popular at the time as opposed to what their traditional sound and interests were. And so they, they met the moment, they paid attention to the moment. So that was really happening actually before it was even a huge thing in the USA. Although the USA gets a lot of credit for this trend, in the 80s then, we had dance pop became a real term. Dance pop was really considered to have been led and shaped by Madonna and Michael Jackson. So it was a big era for that sound. It was also when we there started to be talk of things like an MTV revolution, a big, you know, a big shift in 
the focus in terms of the target audience for pop music and top 40 music. It, it started steering younger. There's a whole other conversation to have about the gro- the expanding middle class in some countries those years and the increased consumerism habits of younger demographics, but I won't go into all that. But there are a lot of factors that influenced the demographic base that the music targeted. And so that's basically what started happening in the 80s. That's when J-pop officially became a thing. So Johnny's and Associates was actually way ahead of its time. But yeah, dance pop, J-pop was also popular then. Uh, there was also Kim Wansun. She was considered the Madonna of South Korea. That was her nickname. She was popular in the 80s, the second half of the 80s, that is. So these trends are really influencing each other even back then. Then in the 90s, we have SM Entertainment being founded and trends from other countries like the USA's dance pop trend continued to flow into South Korea and back out. And then we had the creation of HOT, aka H-O-T, that group that really was one of the, the earliest boy groups for SM Entertainment that Sue Manley helped create and promote. And basically, actually, you'd think that it seems like SM Entertainment has always actively consciously tried to have a presence promoting in China but actually it was kind of an accident because HOT was not expected to do so well in China but Chinese fans really did gravitate towards this group and that left Su Man Lee thinking again it was him just reading the room and really meeting the moment and seeing wow this is something that can go global and connect people globally and so it was kind of not his original intent to have this global reach as much as it may seem like it was intentional. It kind of fell into the realization that it would be a marketable thing that was possible to pull off. And I think that came into starker relief really when this Korean boy group called NRG, they started in 97, they basically... They basically created this strategy. This is going to be an important part of the timeline, so keep this in mind. NRG basically promoted themselves by teaming up with a company called Music Factory. And Music Factory took their music and distributed it locally in Chinese. So they repackaged Chinese versions of NRG albums and sold them locally throughout China. So fans basically had a localized touch to this... To this um, to this externally popular thing. It was basically an export made to feel like an import. And so that turned out to be a very successful marketing strategy for NRG. In June 2000, one member of NRG abruptly passed away. He got a viral infection. And what happened then is tour dates were obviously canceled and the Chinese fan base was really, this was when email was really getting popular for the first time there, and so these Chinese fans were just learning and teaching themselves how to use email just to send their condolences and and just grieve online for the member who passed away suddenly. So that really, this was such a watershed moment when Su Min Lee realized, wow, there's a real big emotional bond here. There can be a huge connection to... Uh, between Korean artists and the Chinese fandom. And so that impact really hit him when he saw the floods of emails pouring in from these new email users from China. They also flooded overseas phone lines. This was, it was a fan, it was a 
fan mail surge of sorts that really caught him off guard. And it really forevermore, I think, shaped how he approached marketing and just realized the power of these fandoms to connect with the other artists, regardless of the language they sing in, which I found very interesting. Also, side note, 1999, so a year before this incident happened where a member passed away, is when the term Hallyu, which refers to the Korean wave spreading past Korea of K-culture influencing things, that term actually was is considered, I mean, there's still some debate, but considered to have officially been, a, been part of media discourse starting in 99, actually, in China. So in this issue of Beijing Youth Daily, they use the term Hallyu for the first time. So it actually wasn't even in Korea where they coined the term as part of their own marketing strategy. It started really from that Chinese magazine. So that I found very interesting. So what happened after all of this is that in 2002, SM Entertainment really started working even harder, more actively seeking out that overseas appeal. And so we saw that with like BOA, who got a number one hit in Japan that year, TVXQ became really big in Japan because they even personalized their message by going by a totally different name. So they're called TVXQ in Korea, they're called Tohoshinki in Japan, and there are other artists like Super Junior who went by different names as well. So again, basically he found a way to localize a global group and make an export exported artists, for lack of a better term, feel like an import. Something neighborly, I guess you could say. And so, really, so what happened was that Su Min Lee had accidentally started promoting well in China, but he more co consciously, directly did try promoting in Japan after that when he realized how that could work. And so, he's basically, and his company has used these on-the-ground localized promotional tactics ever since then. Basically taking word-of-mouth campaigns to the max. And so, that actually, so there are a couple of big moments in SM Entertainment's history and Su Min Lee's history and his colleagues' history in general where they really did influence through those local tactics. So one way they did that was there originally, originally there was some hesitancy and um, skepticism among the Chinese investors for how much they really should pay attention to this K-pop trend. Was it worth really paying too much attention to and investing in? And so he helped sway some of them by basically helping, this was more so as some entertainment colleagues and stuff, not exactly Sumi and Lee, just to be clear, but basically what K-pop decided to do then is go on a showcase tour of sorts in China. So they basically teamed up with this company called Yujin Soft, and they basically promoted things. They had dance performance showcases, they had live quiz shows for fans, they had, I mean, they had all sorts of stuff, music video screenings. So they basically had all of this content for almost like a pre-KCON, KCON of sorts that went on in different spots across China. And again, it was a localized approach. So at each stop, they might do things a little differently or change up a set list or what songs they would promote based on the specific values or the specific interests and trends musically and otherwise of the fans in that specific part of China. So they kept a localized approach as they crossed throughout China and it was received quite well this trip. So that really continued to motivate them to try this tactic. Another big, big reveal really when I was really doing a lot of research about what they've done in the past is that SM Entertainment really reserves every year a significant chunk, an undisclosed but significant chunk 
of their profit margin for these localization things every year. So the localization, local, localization, localized profit promotional help is really a part of their strategy. It's very direct and overt now. So every year they do hire people to spread the word locally, whether that be message board posts or, which I guess would be the equivalent of handing out flyers nowadays or things like that, or just finding or just hiring creators to create these types of events for showcases or, you know, talking to someone who's an expert in a specific, about a specific part of a specific country and trying to work with them on consulting and how to market there. They really spend a lot of time and money on how to localize and promote their content in a specific area. And they do that for so many different areas. And together that adds up to a huge influence. And then the fans do the rest. So basically they learn how to market and give those fans in those local areas the tools to keep spreading the word, and then it snowballs from there. So that's what they've really honed in on as a skill over time, really, and it continues. And so, really, that has been a huge part of SM Entertainment's strategy in K-Pops overall, is just export, export, export focus. They focus a lot on... They they did stumble into different trends from the USA that influenced K-Pop, like the dance pop and whatnot, but in even the rock the rock and roll eras uh, in the USA history have influenced Korean music and things like that but really they fo- the focus on the K-pop industry specifically has been exports focusing not on what influences they can bring to Korea but what they can show the rest of the world and that inevitably was influenced by other countries but really their focus was on How can we take our culture and show it to the world in packages that are going to be received well? In packages that feel relevant and relatable and applicable and interesting and just good and enjoyable for these different people. So that is basically their mission in a way and how they have promoted things over time. So now you may be wondering... Again, we talked about this before, but I just want to add a little more context that's relevant to what we've been saying about YouTube and such of why J-pop and C-pop do not do this or why they don't really have the same strategy. We've already talked in depth about this in previous episodes, so feel free to check out the episodes called C-pop versus J-pop. There are a couple of those. There are some other episodes too where I talk about this, so you can just read the episode descriptions to find them. But basically... Part of it is because they don't really need to. There's such a big market and population size of Japan and China. They don't really need to focus too much on exporting the culture. Um, So we already talked a lot about that aspect of this. But in terms of actually the manually what they're doing, just in terms of literally what what their plan is, um, that aspect is different because of the original hesitancy that they may have had towards promoting internationally. So with a focus on J-pop, we talked at length about Johnny's and Associates, but the an update to this timeline that makes sense here is that 20 years after Johnny's officially debuted, they finally had a YouTube channel that was public. And so they finally did jump onto the YouTube bandwagon in 2018, actually. And so in 2018, Johnny started releasing... YouTube content regularly, like, it has a lot of elements that I just mentioned that do give it success, you know, it's easily accessible, it's 
it's got a huge range of content. It can become part of your daily life with the variety. There's something for everyone, familiar surprises, all of that. So why hasn't J-pop taken off since 2018? If it has found ways to finally let in and utilize YouTube? Well, there are a couple of things, and I think one still has... There are two main things I want to talk about. One is the fact that there is still a lot of secrecy around J-pop and a hesitancy to to let in the press too much because it is relatively recent that they started YouTube it's still kind of just testing the waters a bit because they really still have spent so many decades really trying to over well maybe not overly but really 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 tightly control the image of J-pop artists to the point where actually you couldn't originally watch J-pop videos in full online you could only see the full video for a song if you bought the tour DVD or some other DVD with them. So everything was based on DVDs as well as CDs and things like that. And I mean, even Google images, like before 2011, they didn't even have, like, you couldn't search for a th even a thumbnail image of a member of Johnny's, nothing would come up. So they're very new to allowing people to search and find them online because they really wanted to have control over the narrative. And I mean, even just up until that 2018 YouTube showcase, they were having members of the press sign NDAs before attending press conferences, any video premiere was very hush-hush, it it's, was very controlled. And so they are loosening that up a bit. And just to be clear, as I say with all these industries, it's not every company, it's not a monolith here. There are companies like Sky Corporation, for example, which are known to be much more free and less controlling over their artists. So this isn't a condemnation of the entire world of J-pop. There are always these dark players involved, but anyway, so basically it's so new still that they've started being open that it's going to take some time. And that brings me to my second point, which is that J-pop is not as popular because not only have they not really tried to and haven't really wanted to, they've averted the thought of letting more people in to control the narrative on their own, but also because... They haven't utilized the strategies Sue Manley has spent literally decades crafting. They don't really have, it's it's just the, it's not just the will, but it's the actual lack of the concrete structure of a strategy to do that. So with Sue Manley, for example, over time he mixed attentiveness to the present moment with strategizing for the future. He mixed his experiences in the world of folk with his observations about trot music's popularity at the time to his observations about the MTV revolution and dance pop fever and all of that. He basically took global influences while mixing in his personal interests and tried to figure out and balance out how he promoted, how much he promoted each type of music, how he combined them, how he didn't. He was always attuned, he's always been attuned to the fandom reactions and tailored his response accordingly. Basically a mix of always staying attentive to what's going on in locally and internationally while still factoring in the specific location. So he's always taken this global and local approach at once, mixing, spreading the word with localizing and tailoring the approach to be personal to a certain audience. And that has really kept people coming back for more. So 
basically he knows what he likes and he knows what other people likes. It's all about living in the moment and being aware of the trends and that's what Su Min Lee has really mastered, which takes a lot of years to create this localized effort of word of mouth. That campaign, all of that, that took years to really fully create and strategize for and then start reserving money for every year. So, I mean, it's a lot of budgeting. It's a lot of debate and discussion among staff. It's a lot of management, learning and education. It's a lot of education about different cultures. It's a lot, a lot, a lot that goes into creating an infrastructure for SM Entertainment style marketing. And so J-Pop maybe could reach that level someday, but it's going to take a lot more, more than just a YouTube channel for them to do that because they haven't been building that foundation that Su Min Lee has for so long. So that's the main thing to think about. But also in the future, I think more and more these days, K-pop groups are becoming more global. I'm not talking about like the UK-pop groups and stuff. We've already ranted about those. But there are other parts of Asia where artists are joining these groups, and not all of them are from Korea as much anymore, it seems. Like, there's qu there's more of a mix, like, and then you have the hybrid models of sorts, like, there's this new Filipino band called SB19, and SB19 is actually going to debut pretty soon officially. They've released some pre-debut stuff, but their main official, like, comeback, I guess you could say, is coming up very soon. They are, they are a Filipino group, but they were trained under a K-pop agency. So this is the first time a Filipino boy group has trained under a K-pop agency and is still set to debut in the Philippines. So it'll be very interesting what the reaction is to them, both in the Philippines and abroad. So I, I will, we'll see how well that plays out, but I do think that's another way to test the waters and see, oh these artists can be popular here even if it's in a different language or whatever. It's a really interesting time to see what elements of K-pop can be globalized and then how do you still tailor it to a local audience, which is what I think SB19 will try to do. Similarly, this group J01, I believe that's how you pronounce it, J01 is basically a J-pop group, but they were, they were also created under this K-pop structure. They, they are sort of viewed as like a... Um, a, a project group, so I'm not sure how permanent it will be, but it's kind of experimenting a little and seeing how people will respond to it. And there have been other examples as well over time where they've tried to do this. Boy Story is another one that's a J-pop group, but they've really gotten um, or tried to really make a splash with K-pop elements to their to their teaser schedule, to their other marketing tactics. They even got Jackson from GOT7 to hop on a song with them, so they had that K-pop influence. So what's the big answer for what made Sue Manley so successful in creating this marketing strategy for SM Entertainment? And in general, what has made K-pop so popular globally? What has worked marketing-wise? There's not a clear-cut one. It, it's not a singular answer, but I think... Based on all of this context, it was a mix of luck and skill and raw talent. So it was a keen eye that Sumin Lee was always able to spot talent, to spot when a new music trend was on the up, to spot and identify different fandoms and how receptive they were to different elements of the groups. It was this ob observant nature and attention to detail that really helped him tailor his marketing strategy constantly to stay relevant. 
then it was also a mix of luck because he happened to be at the right place at the right time when it comes to travel in the USA, travel elsewhere. Basically, his global experiences shaped what he witnessed and saw trend-wise and how he brought those trends back to Korea or brought Korean trends out into the world. It was really also, yeah, just who you meet, who you interact with, what you witness, that's always a part of the strategy. So some of it is just luck and opportunity, right place, right time situation. And then raw talent, really, where these artists that, I mean, SM Entertainment, Home to XO, Red Velvet, NCT, TVXQ, Boa, Super Junior, I mean, I could go on and on. It is Girls Generation, Shiny, oh my gosh, Super M now, of course. So I could go on and on. So that's the thing is they really have just found a lot of great talent. And so it's a, it's those three things together. It was luck, it was skill with marketing, and it was just finding the, the finding raw talent, which has to do with luck and skill as well. So those three main variables led to SM Entertainment being how big it is today. And that continues to be a way that K-pop is so popular because they've always had their eye on the ball really. There are a lot of K-pop songs that do add these elements. You know, like for example, lately I was I've been talking about how XOSC has that new billion views song and in general with their new album, you can tell it's really be, it's really tapping into the trends of the moment. Disco tinged pop is really big at the moment and they are really tapping into that. I noticed that with other groups as well, there have been songs that are very um very just loud and in your face and that is in the good way just loud and demanding your attention and that is a trend the 80s has really latched on to seeing that maybe the audience is pretty tired of the melancholy slower songs and is ready for that attention grabbing fast paced stuff so 80s was really ahead of that trend other trends in music, you know, you have like certain synthesizer sounds that are coming back, other synth pop vibes are coming back, the Carly Rae Jepsen of it all we love. So basically the pop music sonically, the pop music trends happening are, you see them in K-pop right now too, which shows that they continue to use this strategy and keep being aware of what the world is listening to. And so that's basically what it is. And then with these K-pop songs, once they've combined local and global touches to these songs and created those masterpiece albums and songs, that is what carries the popularity of other K-pop content online. Because once you get them hooked on the song, then they check out the artist on YouTube. And then you fall down the rabbit hole of watching the artist on YouTube, and you realize all the other things about them that you love. There's this podcast that's it's not super relevant to this conversation, really, but it is in the first episode, at least. It's called Rabbit Hole. It's really good. I highly recommend it. But anyway, Rabbit Hole talks about the YouTube algorithm. And basically, YouTube started using its algorithm to recommend something for you that you already saw, basically. So if you watched a cat video, it would recommend another cat video, and then another, and another. But eventually, they totally rewired their algorithm intentionally because they knew they couldn't just keep doing that forever. Someday you're tired of all the cat videos. Enough is enough, you've reached saturation. And YouTube is always, always wants you to want more, and to view more, and to spend more hours on there. So they tried to find a way to use technology in very mind-boggling ways to figure out, and I guess they cracked the code here, figure out 
how do you form connections in your mind before you even do? So before people formed connections between a cat video and laughing at, I don't know, America's Funniest Home Videos, they tried to create an algorithm that would make that connection for you. So when I got tired of cat videos, the next recommended for you video would be from America's Funniest Home Videos, if that was my sense of humor. Basically knowing you better than you know yourself. And they created the algorithms that keep you, that recommend things for you that aren't a blatant copy of what you just watched that again have that that concept that I was talking about earlier about fresh surprises or um that that wasn't the right phrase but you know what I mean it's like uh familiar surprises that's it familiar surprises you two found a way to use that concept of whether that was the directly the term they were going to use or not really the concept of Familiar enough so that you want to watch it. It's not totally out of your wheelhouse, making you hesitant to try it, because we resist change naturally as humans, but also surprising enough and refreshing enough that it's worth a watch on its own. It's unique. It stands out. And so that's how the YouTube algorithm changed over time, and that is how K-pop really really is now, because K-pop evolved with the YouTube trend, really, in a way that you don't just watch... You don't just watch a shiny video, for example, and then another shiny one, and then another shiny one. It recommended to you shiny and then TVXQ or Red Velvet, etc. And so, of course, I'm not saying you can't get obsessed with just shiny videos. Like, I can go down a rabbit hole just watching one K-pop artist's videos. But the point is that the way that K-pop, instead of just one K-pop group getting so popular globally, it can be this huge wave of all of these K-pop artists getting popular because it gets people in that rabbit hole of going from artist to artist and becoming fans of more than one group and just is one group after another that you can be exposed to thanks to these algorithms. So it's really, yeah, it's a combination of figuring out what the data says, figuring out what the people say, and finding a way to be an export-focused, use an export-focused strategy but also add these tailored, personalized, localized approaches to the strategies that you use to spread a message. And I think uh, K-pop has just done such an impressive job with that. And it continues to be this cyclical loop of influence because the music shapes the content and the games they play and the soundtracks they have on other content on the Star's YouTube channels and that those channels and the reactions to those affect the music because if you like watching them on a certain for example like Johnny lately from NCT he's doing that you know sunny side up series where he DJs online and whatnot and Johnny also has the communication center series JCC so those projects really got fans excited saying we want more DJ Johnny and then we got DJ Johnny during their latest live stream concert and possibly more. Well, he's even credited as a DJ for one of the songs on their latest album. So that's an example of how this loop feedback loop is a loop. It's not just um it's not just one one influence and the other. The arrows go both ways here where the YouTube com- the YouTube comment section and everything shapes the music and the music shapes what they post online. And so we're going to continue to see that reciprocity in terms of influence over time, I think, and yeah, K-pop really is just, K-pop and YouTube are just such great partners, so really the OT, the OTP, we stand. so that is basically the summary of how music trends shaped where we are today in terms of K-pop's popularity and why 
we love going down the rabbit hole of watching K-pop videos. So I hope this was informative and interesting for you all, and I will be uh, updating you on some similar stories if they come out about technology shaping music trends and things like that. On another, there are a few themes I have coming up that I don't want to spoil yet, but one of them is, of course, the TXT episode we need to do. Another is an, a big event in music history that I don't want to give away yet, because if I give it up, you'll Google it, and then you won't watch the show. So just know there's a huge monumental event that shifted both music and the K-pop industry specifically forever, really. And I'm going to dissect what that moment meant and what the influence was and what happened. It is a really bonkers story, but I'm excited to talk about it. It fascinates me, and you'll just see. It's going to be awesome. Before I go, I do want to congratulate Seventeen. I feel like I should have like a Seventeen segment of the show more because I don't talk about them enough, and obviously I love them. So today we have to congratulate Seventeen that they've just passed 600 million Spotify streams and... I, you know, based on the rate I stream their music, I assumed that I had contributed all 600, but it has been brought to my attention that other people are also streaming it, so apparently I streamed it less than 600 million times, so my apologies for thinking incorrectly, but I've contributed a lot to that, so you're welcome, guys, and congrats. All right, that is it for today. I will see you next week. Have a good weekend.